Welcome to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening in. The Neighborhood Church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We hope that through these podcasts you are encouraged, that you're inspired, and that you're provided with practical wisdom on how to find and follow Jesus. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Well, good evening. How is everyone out there online? I hope you're doing good. Um, It's good to be here. My name is Pastor Jordan, and I'm just looking forward to continuing in this series, as Pastor John mentioned, as we've talked about faith, fear, and tonight we're going to look at foolishness. And so before I start, allow me just to recap very quickly. In our first message, Pastor John uh, talked about faith and what that means for us as Christians and how it guides how we live, how it directs us, how it leads us, Um, teaching that as Christians we walk by faith and that faith really is the currency of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. And last week, Pastor Yasmin spoke about fear and and what that means for us as well. And uh, that we bring ourselves before God, knowing that fear is the currency of the kingdom of darkness. And so today, we get to talk a little bit about foolishness. And so what about foolishness? Um, now, we all know, I think, what foolishness can look like. We, when we hear, hear that word foolishness, we all think of something. Hopefully, you're not thinking of specific names. Hopefully, you know, you're not kind of going there in your thinking right now. But we all know what foolishness can look like, and you don't have to look far. Just turn on the evening news sometime, and uh, you're, gonna, you're guaranteed to see stories of all sorts of stuff that you're just going to shake your head at and think to yourself, this is absolutely foolish, Right? Uh, We don't have to look far in our society and even in North America in general. Like, look at what took place in the USA at the Capitol a few weeks ago. And most of us immediately, we see something like that, and we see how dangerous it is. We think foolishness. There's a lot of words we can add to something like that. But let's put the mirror back in at ourselves here in the church. You think of churches sometimes who read a scripture about poisonous snakes, right? And then decide to invite them into their evening service as guests um, to test their faith. That's not necessarily what I think Mark had in mind when he was writing about that in the gospel. And I think we can quickly look at something like that and think to test our faith that way is foolish. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. And I'll address that more as we go on this evening. But foolishness in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is defined as this, having or showing a lack of good sense, judgment, or discretion. And so how can foolishness creep into our lives as Christians? That's what we're going to talk about this evening. And so let me start by reading some scripture to frame this discussion. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, and verses 5 and 6, we read this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is where faith comes in, friends. As Christians, we need to recognize that we can trust God, that he is good, that he is all-knowing, that he knows what is best. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, and our part to play when it comes to faith is just obeying. It's obedience. It's trusting. And we obey not necessarily just because we have to or because we're forced to, but because we want to. 
Because God is worthy of our trust. He's proven faithful to us. And we walk by faith in him. And so trust God with your heart, not just parts of it, not just some of it, not just the ones that you feel comfortable handing over, but all of it. God can be trusted. Let me start just by saying that. And the scripture just encourages us to trust God with all your heart. But I want to focus on this line, um, probably for the majority of the evening. But lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Now here is where I believe we can get into foolishness. And I'm sorry to say that, but when we leave the path of trusting God with everything, we as humans who are imperfect and prone to mistakes— Um, it's me, can go down all sorts of trails, come up with all sorts of ideas that are not helpful or beneficial for us. The community of faith, not beneficial for that or even beneficial for the cause of Christ and his representation in this world. And if we're going to avoid the path of foolishness, then we must not lean on our own understanding, but instead look to him for direction and look to the scriptures for direction. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple, though. You know, I wish it was as easy as saying, uh, look to the Bible for direction. But in a lot of ways, we can make a mess of that, too. And we're going to talk about that this evening. But the trouble is that when we read scriptures, I believe, we also bring ourselves to the text. We bring our stories. We bring our experiences. We bring our beliefs. We bring our ideals. We bring uh, the things that, that we approve of and disapprove of. When we read scriptures, we bring ourselves to the text. And often that includes our biases, that includes our particulars, our preferences, our desires. And so allow me to really just pose a thought to you today. When you read the scriptures, do you read what you believe? Or do you believe what you read? Do you read what you believe or do you believe what you read? Now, I heard someone talk about this a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me in my mind, and so I'll just claim it as my own material tonight, okay? But I I seriously can't remember who said this, but read what you believe or believe what you read. Consider that with me for a moment. Do you ever read what you believe or simply believe what you read? Because this will make a world of difference in how we're going to understand and apply the scriptures. Let me explain. When we approach the scriptures, do we just read into the text sometimes what we believe? Or what we want? Or what we desire? And I think it can be easy for us to get into a place like that where we literally go to the text with something in mind already and we try to affirm that and we try to find some, some backup for that and we try to find something that's going to kind of give approval to that. Or do we approach the text, the scriptures, with humility in order to be taught, in order to be formed by him? And rather than bring our agenda to the text, do we humbly accept the word of God as it is and allow it to transform us into Christ-likeness. You see, it's incredibly important, I believe, that we are not people who simply just read what we believe, but that we trust in God and that we believe what we read when we go to Scripture. And to do this, we're going to have to do this with some intentionality. we got to be intentional about it. Because it's easy to really just go to the text and really want to project something that you believe on top of it. 
And when we do this, when we fail to believe what we read, um, failing to do so, it results in all sorts of theologies and ideas and teachings that kind of run around that seem to resemble more of our North American culture probably, a first world culture, and not necessarily what the scriptures teach us. Foolishness, if I could use that word. You know, think about the heroes of the faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. We read about all that they did by faith. Um, Hebrews 11, which I often call like, you know, the faith hall of fame, it, it gives us an example of people who lived by faith. And it's interesting that their ideas and teaching of what living by faith was seem to be different sometimes than what we see taught and championed in our society. You see, the chapter gives an account of the, of the great and at times difficult things that these men and women of God did by faith, in their faith in God. In Hebrews 11 and verse 13, we read this. We read all these people, talking about those in the, in the chapter of faith, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The scriptures tell us that all of these heroes of faith, these people who were commended to live by faith, were still living by faith and never quite got to see the promises on earth that they were looking forward to. And yet that didn't stop them. And yet that didn't seem to, 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 to be the, to, to be the be, be all end all for them here on earth. But they continued to walk by faith. I, I, I fear sometimes that in North America we have a, this idea that to have God choose us for something or to be favored with God seems to suggest in another sense that we receive favors from God, if I could say it like that. You know, just thinking about Christmas and the Christmas story, just because it's fresh and we were just there last month, I think about Mary and I think about Joseph and I think about what they had to walk through in order to, you know, really deliver Jesus to the world. And when the angel approached Mary and said, greetings, you've received favor from God, the scriptures don't say that she jumped up and down, that she was excited, that she was, you know, happy about this, but the scriptures actually say in verse 29 in Luke 1, if you want to check it out, that she was greatly troubled by all this. Because she knew that this favor didn't mean that everything was going to be easy, that everything was going to go smoothly, that it was going to mean like, you know, a, a, a bunch of like, you know, riches, and that it was going to, they were going to live in a big mansion, that this whole birth scenario was just going to be in the perfect state-of-the-art facility. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. In fact, it cost them a lot. This favor with God for them was costly. You see, Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words because Mary was wise enough to recognize that favor with God didn't necessarily mean she was receiving favors from God. But that this obedience, this trusting God by faith was going to be costly for her and Joseph. And they were going to have to leave their home and they were going to have to be on the run and they were going to be shunned. And then they were going to give birth and lay their baby in a trough literally where the animals eat. And this wasn't exactly the delivery that we would expect as humans to see the Messiah show up in. It's not necessarily how we would, we'd play it all out if it was us writing the story. And this favor on their lives, it wasn't this picture-perfect ideal that we sometimes desire from God. 
And Hebrews chapter 11, we take a quick look through the list of those who lived by faith, and you're going to see that many of them faced troubles. They, they faced danger. They faced persecution. They didn't, you know, live the big earthly blessing and easy life that many have associated with following Jesus in our culture today. Hebrews 11, 39, 40 repeats the idea again. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And yet they were faithful. And they recognized that what was here is temporary and that God had something far better planned for them in the future. See, I want to make a comment just before I go on any further. I, 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 I don't want you to get the idea that this is about bring on the pain. That's not what I'm saying tonight. Nor am I, you know, c condemning blessing and provision that we experience. Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that these are not we are a part of another kingdom, and we trust that God has something far greater ahead of us for those of us who live by faith. And so we don't make earthly things our treasure. And we don't get so caught up in our own particulars and our own biases of the things here on earth, but we desire to store up treasures in heaven as Jesus challenged us to do. And so, let me say this. Faith becomes foolish when, when we decide what God should do. Faith can become foolish when we put ourselves in the place of God trying to decide what he should do. When we insist that what we approve of and that what we're happy with, what God approves of and he's happy with as well. When we seem to think that God needs our advice. I, at one of our prayer meetings a, a couple weeks ago, um, there was just this real honest prayer um, given by a gentleman, and uh, he was praying for world leaders and, and, and thanking God for them, and, and, and in the middle of his prayer, he made, he made the comment like something along these lines of, not necessarily the people I would have picked, but then again, I don't remember you, God, asking me for my opinion, and he literally prayed that in the middle of his prayer, and I loved it, and I loved the honesty behind that, because when we naturally assume that God must think, act, and back all of our ideas, we're finding ourselves, I think, in a dangerous place. You see, faith works because it is birthed in the heart of God for us to do things. You see, all these heroes of faith heard from God and they obeyed. They didn't tell God what to do or insist on their own plans or their own desires or their own wants. But they sought God for direction and this was part of their obedience. Their part was obedience. And faith works when we trust God and are obedient to him and when we're not led astray by all sorts of things, including our own will. Faith can turn into foolishness when we insist that God follows our plans, when we insist that God follows our desires, when we insist that God needs to think and act like we do. Let's chat about that for a moment. Let me give you an illustration here of a former USA president, Thomas Jefferson, president of the United States of America, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and really just the face of republicanism um, in America. And Thomas Jefferson loved Jesus, but he had problems with certain aspects of the Gospels and certain um, aspects of the Scriptures. And there were certain things in there that he couldn't live with. He was an enlightened man. 
and he wanted everything to make sense rationally, and he wanted things to make sense scientifically. And so there were certain things in there that he couldn't reconcile in the terms he wanted to. And so what did he do? He just cut the scriptures out that he didn't like. And he ended up cut, cutting out so much stuff that he really only kept 10% of the Gospels. And he cut out any claims of Jesus as the Son of God. He cut out the claims of his miracles and his supernatural works, even the crucifixion, even the resurrection. He literally cut these things out of the Bible and kept only what he wanted. And Thomas Jefferson wanted a Jesus who was a good moral philosopher. Being an enlightened man, as I mentioned, Jefferson didn't believe in miracles, and he, he couldn't quite get his mind around the idea of resurrection. And so he cut it all out. And really what he did was he composed his own image of Jesus, that being Jesus as a good moral philosopher. And his work became known as the Jefferson Bible, which you can still buy today. Last time I looked, McNally Robinson had a copy. I'm not suggesting you go buy one, okay? But if you're into that kind of thing and you just want to see what that would look like, it was published as recent as 1996. I know that. But really, when you think about that, what Thomas Jefferson really did was create his own version of the life and person of Jesus Christ. And, you know, he completely changed who he was to fit his expectations. And Thomas Jefferson, even after doing so, still claimed to be a devout follower of Jesus. However, as history shows, it was after a Jesus that he wanted and created himself. And I know it seems crazy and even to some very offensive what Thomas Jefferson did with the scriptures. I get that. And being a person, you know, who believes in the inspiration of God's voice in the scriptures, I get that. Not a fan of what he did, okay? But you really have to ask yourself sometimes, did Thomas Jefferson just do publicly what we often do privately with the scriptures? Think about that for a second. Did he just do publicly what maybe and perhaps we do privately sometimes with the scriptures? I guess what I'm getting at is, does the Jesus of scripture ever make me uncomfortable? Do we also ever try, and maybe not intentionally, but do we ever try to create a Jesus that we're comfortable with as well? Do we ever nitpick our favorite scriptures and our favorite stories and ideas from the biblical texts? and keep and live by what we like, and just ignore and even figuratively cut out what we don't like sometimes. You see, William Temple warned about this, and he warned about the nature of theological error when he noted that if our conception of God is radically false, or if it misses the mark, then the more devout we are to that conception of God, then the worse off we're going to be in following him. And think about our lives. I think it's true. Each and every person on this planet has their own circumstances to which they are not neutral. Okay? Each one of us has our own circumstances in life to which we're not neutral. Because we all have our own particularities. Our particular views, our particular allegiances, whether it's to our families or in our churches or in our politics, etc., and it's very likely that because of this that we think differently sometimes than Jesus does. And we don't always see things as we should. And we can't assume that Jesus stands by and supports every one of our particularities or our biased views 
And we dare not try to attach those things to him. And this is a vital truth, friends, because when Jesus starts to look like me, I'm not talking about me looking more like Jesus, but when Jesus starts to look more like me, and I start shaping him that way, when, when he holds my same views on everything and talks and walks like someone who grew up in my situation in Canada, when he looks like that, maybe I'm not worshiping Jesus anymore. I know it's a, that's an interesting way to put it, but maybe I'm worshiping a Jesus that I created or that I desire or that I'm comfortable with. You know, think about it. What if I believe that God extends mercy to the people I want mercy extended to? What if I think that God will forgive, you know, all the things that I would forgive? What if I think that God should be working in this world in the exact same way that I'd be working in this world if I was God? My thought here is that if we ever get to the point where we could just box God in and determine his ways and, and every thought beyond doubt, then friends, we've ceased studying God. But we're likely studying a God that we've created ourselves because God isn't that small. Where we can figure out every single detail and know every one of his ways. And so let's be honest with ourselves here, church. Do we have our own particulars? I want you on the comments sections, whether you're on Facebook or our website, YouTube, to start answering some of these, okay? I'm trying to create a few fights here for us tonight on church, okay? And so we all have our own particulars, okay? Of course we do. And so here's the first one. First example of a particular we have. Are you a Starbucks person or are you a Tim Hortons person? All right, light up those comments. I want to see you get really, um, you know, into this. I see some Tims from the people who are here right now. And uh, each one of us has something that we prefer. I'm more of a tea guy, so I, I, I've rolled a bit neutral in the last few years on this one. How about this one? Who do you, what, what are you particular about here? The reigning Grey Cup champions, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers? Or the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? Anyone? Are you particular? Do you have a view? Do you support one of these things? I'm not going to give my opinion because I want you to keep your attention and keep watching, okay? But we each are particular about things. Now, here's one that's really going to get the gloves out, I think. Are you a pancakes person or are you into waffles, okay? And, and I'm waffles all the way, but my daughter would fight me on this, all right? But these are, I, I'm being silly, and, and I'm showing that these are all minor particulars, which I've, funny enough, I've seen people actually lose their minds over these things in debate, right? And they get into great arguments, and they get into great anger about stuff like this. And hopefully the comment section's keeping it good right now, okay? But we all have areas in life to which we are not neutral, and where we take a side, or we choose a preference. And do these ever cross over into our life with God? Do we want God to look and to be and to act a certain way? Are we ever in danger sometimes of perhaps trying to make God more like us? And trust me, you know, Jesus has his own particulars and preferences and plans. And my job and our job as those who are going to follow him is to acknowledge those things and to submit to him in everything. You see, the particulars of Jesus force me to come to terms with the particularities of myself. And if I let them for me, they really protect me from creating God into who I want him to look like. 
If God starts to always think like me, act like me, forgive the people that I forgive, hate the people I hate, vote like I do, support the same political associations as I do, if he supports everything that I support, and he's always on my side, then perhaps I am, perhaps, I'm also guilty like Jefferson of trying to create a God of my own liking. Because at some point, my will is going to be broken in this, friends. And I'm going to have to submit to him. You see, a God who makes me feel comfortable, a God who doesn't rattle or shake my comfort zone, it's not going to happen in, in, in real life Christianity. Think about it. How many things in this world has God given, been given credit for that perhaps he had nothing to do with in this world? How many times do we attach the words God said or God told me to something that seems so far from his character as it's revealed in Scripture? You see, we have to be careful about attaching, you know, God said or God told me to the things that don't line up with God and what we read about in the text of Scripture. We have to be careful that we're not just people, as my former pastor used to say, who pulled the God card and assume that because we feel a certain way, then God must too. It's really fun tonight, eh? We need to trust that God has things under control and that we as humans, we can't ruin his plans. We're not that powerful. You know, we don't have that much power over him. And so regardless of what happens, of what decisions are made, of who holds a certain office, of where we live, etc., we can trust that God can handle his business and that he doesn't need our advice he doesn't need a general manager. Okay, we don't have to be his GMs. We can relieve ourselves of ever thinking that we have to own up to something like that. He can unfold his own plans. And I think if we're going to live in such a way, it's going to require some honesty. It's going to require some humility, some humbling ourselves to consider the fact that, uh, that perhaps we too, as humans, can miss the mark. I know I can. I know I have. And recognizing this, friends, can keep me from foolishness. And this is not some minor thing in walking with Jesus, but what we believe about God has great implications for how we live and for how we represent him in this world. And that's why I believe this is so important. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God will shape the destiny of your life because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Think about that. If we become like what we worship, and so if you're worshiping a God that perhaps you've created and you're comfortable with, then you become more like that yourself in how you live with God. And that can take you off track. And there's so many examples that we could see in the world where this plays out. Let me give some examples here. The person who carries out hate crimes in the name of religious zeal, which could result in death, hurt, and loss for so many. The prosperity gospel preacher getting out of his Rolls Royce and saying that riches are a sign of obeying God. The Westboro Baptist picketers who are always telling people how much God hates them and how angry he is with them. The man sacrificing another human in the name of religious duty. The sniper who prays to God before taking the shot. The peace activist who risks their life to stop another war because they take Jesus' teachings on enemy love as true. 
the nun who gives up what we call a normal life to live in poverty and work for social change. All of these men and women that I just described do what they do and are who they are because of what they believe about God. And it has such implications on how they live their lives and our actions. So clearly what we think about God matters, and it matters a lot. Who God is has profound implications for who we are, and maybe even more importantly, who we will be in certain situations. And the problem in all of this is that we often end up with a God who, interestingly enough, looks an awful lot like us. We, we find ourselves in that place sometimes. And the saying goes, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been, you know, trying to repay the favor ever since, is kind of how Voltaire put it, right? And there's truth to that, and that makes sense in that way when you think about it that way. There is a natural inclination, a human bent, I believe, in each of us that we have to be careful and watchful of to try to make God into our own image. And you know you've done that. You know you've done this if God always seems to agree with you on everything. If he's always taking your side. If he's interested in exactly what interests you. If he votes like you, talks like you, only likes the people you like. If you're passionate about something and you realize, well, God is too, right? Um, you know, often above all, he's tame. And he can be controlled. And you never get mad at him. You never get blown away at him. You never get rebuked. And you never get challenged by him because he's controllable. You see, sometimes what we believe about God says more about us than it does about God. You see, our theology, which literally means study of God, is like a mirror to the soul. It shows us what's deep inside. You see, we don't always see things as they are, but perhaps sometimes we see them as we are. And in our tendency, church, to want to control things or be comfortable with things, perhaps we unfairly and often unconsciously inflict this on our understanding of God. You see, one of the writers of the books I read this past week said this. He said, the most ancient primal temptation, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, is to decide for ourselves who, sorry, decide for ourselves what God is like and whether we should live into his vision of human flourishing or come up with our own. And so we will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so this isn't a new problem, but it's something that's existed ever since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The Jesus that you see very much determines the type of Christian that you're going to be. And if this is true, if our understanding of God is this important, then we must make sure that we see Jesus not just for who people say he is, or maybe even more important for whom we wish or hope he is, but we see Jesus for who he is, and this is revealed to us by the scriptures when we believe what we read, friends. Trusting God and acknowledging him will change our bent towards entitlement, I believe. And allowing God to lead us, trusting him, submitting to his word, keeps us, I believe, from the path of foolishness that we're talking about today. So Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. It also says, In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight.
And I believe we do this by living according to his word. And not just some words, but all of them, okay? And I have to say that. And in the proper context too, okay? You see, the enemy can quote scripture and, and, and use it out of context as well. And so we have to be careful not to do that ourselves. Think about when Jesus fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, and was led into the desert. And the enemy tried to tempt him. The enemy tried to get him off course. And he tried tempting Jesus to insert his own will and to choose his own comfort, which at the time was food, <laughs> and to choose his own desires and to try to help the Father out and really, you know, make things go quicker here and speed up this whole plan that God had put into motion. I don't think we can fully appreciate how Jesus responded, friends, in this. So let's, let's check it out quickly in Matthew 4. We have a second. The, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Now he gets clever here. Look, look how he quotes here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and so they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus knew that the only way forward was the will of his Father in heaven. And even though he was tempted to hurry things up, he was tempted to, to fill his appetites, he was tempted to go about this his own way, he was, Scripture was even thrown at him to, to, you know, to send him in this direction. He never, ever did. And he leaves us an example to follow. And so some closing thoughts on how we can avoid foolishness. Number one, here's the first thought. We avoid foolishness by living on every word that comes from the mouth of God and not just our favorite scriptures. But we avoid foolishness by living according to every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, it's funny when I hear people, um, you know, quote scriptures or claim scriptures, and I have no problem with that. I think it's good to, you know, speak out the word and to, and, and to allow some scriptures to speak to you. But it's always the really blessing ones I hear people quoting, right? I don't ever really hear people quoting, you know, the 40 lashes minus one, shipwrecked and all this kind of stuff, right? Like that people, you know, face for living out their faith for Jesus. And not that we have to do that, but we live according to every word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. All of it. Number two, we avoid foolishness by recognizing that his ways and thoughts are so much higher than ours. And this keeps us humble. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we need to recognize that God is in control and that we can trust that he knows what is best for us. And we can find peace in that. And we can walk in faith in that, knowing that he knows what is best. And this will require humility to admit that we don't know everything. And we can't figure everything out. And we don't have all the answers, but that's okay because we serve one who does. 
And we can take hope in that today. And we can rest in that. Finally, a third way in which we can avoid foolishness is by thinking because we know the end of the story that we know all the details. Well, what do I mean by that? I think sometimes we get so caught up in trying to figure things out that it actually distracts us from the mission of God. And we can pick our own little hobby horse here or a little theological thing that we just want to fight about and write about and talk about, right? Think about how many books and TV shows have been written about predicting when Jesus is going to return with certainty, okay? They should all be off the shelf now because they were all wrong, right? Or about how the world ends or about who's involved in that. Blood moons, I'm not even going to go there, okay? And so many different theories that people become so passionate about that it occupies our minds far more than it should. Friends, we can trust him. And we can trust that he has it figured out. In 1 Corinthians 1, we read this. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And it's foolish to think humans can ruin the plan of God. You see, I see Christians so convinced sometimes in their political beliefs and social beliefs that if someone were to lose this office or if somebody were no longer to be in charge of something, that all of a sudden God's hands are tied and he couldn't do anything. That is foolish to think that way, church. God is not limited by what happens here on earth. He's not limited by our decisions. He's not limited by our choices. And so instead of following side issues and seeking agendas, let's give ourselves to what is truly our calling. And that is to be people who are living by faith, loving God and loving others, loving those around you, right? going into all the world, baptizing and making disciples and experiencing life transformation as Jesus always intended. Not that he transforms into who we want him to be, but that we transform into everything he has for us. Rich Velotas said this. He said, God is committed to our transformation. He is not in the business of simply improving our lives. He wants to infuse them with his life. And so, trust in the Lord with all your heart, church. That's faith in action for us. And lean not on your own understanding. We don't assume to be in his place or spot, but we recognize that his ways and his thoughts are so much higher above ours. And we're okay with that. In all your ways, submit to him. And that, for us tonight, might be our obedience. That we begin submitting to him in his ways. And he will make our paths straight. He will keep us on the right track, keeping us from the path of foolishness. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And one of the things the scripture tells us before we take communion, one of the things the scripture impresses on us is that we examine ourselves. We examine our hearts. We bring ourselves before God and we ask him to examine us. And it's a fitting way, I think, for us to end today as we just consider this idea of who God is. You see, a prayer that I've been driven back to so much in my walk with Jesus, so much in my working as a pastor, and really just living as a follower of Christ in this world, is found in Psalm 139. And it's verses 23 and 24. And it's something I've prayed over and over, and there's different times throughout the year where I just find myself back here. 
wondering if perhaps I've missed the mark, wondering perhaps if there's a little too, too much of me in this equation, wondering perhaps if, you know, I'm really following my preferences sometimes when I know exactly what God's saying to me. And the prayer of David was this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search my heart, O God. I like how the message translation says it. It says, investigate my life, O God. Reveal to me in any way in which I've missed it and lead me in your path today. Can we pray that today? Wherever you're at, you might be on your couch, you might be driving, you might be out for a walk, but wherever you're at, if you could pull up that prayer, leave it up maybe. But let's just go before God and let's ask him to search our hearts and reveal to us whatever it is he needs to reveal to us this evening. And as we examine ourselves, as we look to him, we're going to come back together. And as a church community, we're going to love one another wherever we're at today. And we're going to take communion. So my encouragement is just as we continue to worship here, let's go to God and allow him to search our hearts. We are so thankful that you've listened in to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. Go to the podcast description and follow the link to get in touch with us. Everything we do would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to give, check out that same link in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.